If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you turn there, I can't help but to welcome a dear couple, dear friend of mine from Georgia. So this morning we have with us Sankey and Martha Peace. How are you guys doing? Good to see you. Many of you know uh, Martha from her writing and speaking ministry and biblical counseling. Sankey's the one who really makes it happen. He's the one in the kitchen heating up the prayers and letting Martha do her thing. But we so appreciate them visiting. They're good friends with the McGuire's. They love our church. They're often in the area and they always come here because they love to be with us, and it's just a real honor and a privilege to have you guys with us this morning. So if you have a Bible, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I decided to take just a little bit of a break from our study through Acts. We'll be getting back soon enough, but this morning, we're going to look at a kind of a standalone message, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through uh, chapter 7, verse 1, and the title of the uh, message this morning is, The Call to Be Separate. The call to be separate. That's what we're going to be looking at from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And so I'll read the passage and then we'll jump into our time together. And hopefully you'll be blessed and encouraged our time in the word together this week. Verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Father, we're grateful to behold our God this morning. We're grateful to sing songs of worship and praise that would stir us up this morning. And we're so moved even by the reading of this text, which so clearly states that there should be no union between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial. And so as we study what this means and as we seek to apply in our lives by your Spirit's work how we can truly be separate from the world, I pray that you would shine your light on us and that you would stir in this place in our hearts, God, a a, a real pure devotion to be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, there's a pretty big difference between growing up in a small town and growing up in the big city. I grew up in a small town, Cochrane, Georgia. Who's heard of it? Nobody except the people from Georgia. All right. I grew up in Cochrane, Georgia. It's a town of about 4,000 people, and that's where I grew up. And today, I checked the population, and it's still about 4,000 people. So it hasn't changed a whole lot. And one thing I learned from growing up in a small town is that we were a little bit different from people who grew up in the big city. Most of the people in my hometown seemed to be content with driving cars until they got so old that you would have to enter them into a museum. (laughs) Or you could just park them in your front yard for spare parts, or if you just didn't feel like cutting the grass. 
That kind of stuff happens in the South. It's for real. That's the kind of town I grew up in. And I, I, I even had a truck in high school that was so old, the starter stopped working on it. So my friends and I would just push it off in the school parking lot after school and kick it in gear. Those were the good old days. You remember those days, right? And there's just a difference sometimes in growing up in this small town, in a big town. People have nice, shiny cars. They go fast. They're electric. It's amazing to see just, you know, just some differences between small town, big town. Another difference might be in growing up in the country versus growing up in the city is the, the stereotypical jobs where I grew up t- tended to gravitate more towards blue collar jobs like farming, uh, working as a mechanic, or working in one of the two factories that we had in town, the Lithonia Light Lighting Company, and we had a shirt factory. And most of the kids I went to school with, their parents worked at one of those two companies. And it, it seemed to me like city folks as we called them, kind of had different kind of indoor jobs, those white collar jobs like being a banker or being a lawyer or being a businessman. There's certainly differences, big differences that exist in the way of life for someone who grew up in the country and someone who grew up in the big city. There's also big differences just geographically between living in the South and living in other parts of the country. And maybe no bigger difference exists between the Southeast and the Northeast, where we know it was a cause of a civil war 150, 170 years ago. Uh, The people up North, we call them Yankees. Uh, They spoke with a nasal uh, accent that would say things like, hello, I'm from Boston. You know, or they're from New York, can I get you another cup of coffee? And of course, they would uh, make fun of the way we talk down south. They call us hillbillies, rednecks, because we say things like, now that just ain't right, you know, and they don't like the way we talk or they think it's funny. We think the way they talk is funny. There's just a lot of differences, a lot of differences even in the food. I I grew up eating peaches, grits, fried catfish, boiled peanuts, and grew up drinking sweet tea. Uh, I remember the first time I went up north, I ordered tea at a restaurant and I, I just ordered like sweet tea because that's what you do in the South. And they said, we don't have any sweet tea. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they were like, well, sir, we can bring you tea and sugar, but you'll have to put the sugar in your tea. I'd never heard of that. I just assumed it was always sweet tea. That's how things are done in the South, right? I grew up eating grits up north. They eat this stuff called cream of wheat. I'm like, what is that? There's just all kinds of differences in the South. You, you just wave at everybody. You're walk, going on a walk. You're driving down the road. Just every, every car. You, hey, and they politely wave back. If you go up north, you wave at somebody. They kind of give you a scowl. You know, turn the cold shoulder. Hey, you want to fight? You know, and you're just like, oh, calm down. Calm down. Just a lot of differences. There's huge differences not only between the South and the North. There's huge differences between our country, America, and different cultures. I mean, I've been to many parts of the world, as maybe you have over the years, and I've had the privilege of doing mission work in various places like Central and South America, Europe, Africa, Australia. Uh, The most foreign culture I've ever been in would probably have to be Asia, just for my own personal temperament difference. And I'm not talking about Russia, though I've been there a few times. I'm talking about the, the Far East, like China and like Thailand and Japan. I did a mission trip to Japan in the early 2000s, and I'll just never forget what a completely different world it was just with the perfect manicured yards and these well-kept gardens around every house and to experience these tiny cars. Do do you know the cars in Japan are smaller? 
Like they're like go-karts, you know, they just kind of box them together. They're really smart. You go into a grocery store and it's like these little tiny carts, like the carts we have at our grocery store, like the kids' carts, you know. They have these carts in the aisles in the grocery store like this. And you're just kind of walking through, you know, and they're just doing their thing. And that's all good. It's, it's, it's great, right? Every culture is just completely different. There are, there are just so many differences in the world that we live in. But this morning, what I want to talk to you about is there is even bigger differences than geographical differences, cultural differences, the way that you talk. There's bigger differences than that. And what I'm talking about this morning is the difference that exists between a believer and an unbeliever. Differences between the regenerate and the unregenerate. Differences between those who are citizens of heaven and those who are citizens of this world. There's not a bigger difference on the planet than that. And saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ produces a radical transformation in every part of your being. Christians are new creatures who have been changed radically from the inside out. And that's why we read in a passage like 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the chapter right before this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been, as Christians in Christ, we've been born again. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have been turned from darkness to light, from the domination of Satan to being dominated and even enslaved to God. Believers and unbelievers live in two different worlds, which are diametrically opposed to each other. Christians belong to Christ's kingdom, which is characterized by righteousness, light, and eternal life. And unbelievers, unfortunately, live in Satan's kingdom, which is characterized by evil deeds, darkness, and eternal death. The saved and the unsaved have different beliefs, different affections, and different goals. And consequently, relationships between believers and unbelievers are at best limited to the temporal and to the external. Unbelievers and believers may only share temporal and external commonalities. They might enjoy family ties. They might work the same type of job. They might share in the same relationships, in the, in, in the same community, experience the same hobbies, even agree on certain political and social issues. They're all got to be Dodger fans. You know, you could be Dodger fans, believer, unbeliever. But the difference between believer and unbeliever is like night and day, they live in completely different worlds. And it's obvious that believers cannot live in both worlds. And the Apostle John makes this abundantly clear when he wrote that familiar passage in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. James expresses the same perspective in no uncertain terms when he wrote in James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The Apostle Paul has already written in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so... From our text this morning, we need to know that Christians 
had greatly struggled to make a clean break in this passage from the immoral lifestyle from their past. And despite having professed faith in Christ and becoming part of this Corinthian church in this congregation, there's still some people clinging to, to, to different pagan elements of religion and culture. And so our text this morning couldn't be more clear. Paul is issuing a call to be separate from unbelievers, a call to be different from the world, a call to abandon your old self and to adhere to the kingdom of God. And maybe you're here this morning and you are not just in the world, you're still a little bit of the world. And maybe you haven't clearly seen the line demarcated by scripture of the differences that should be in your life and the life that's lived in the world. Or maybe you're here and you don't quite understand why the church has to be so different from the culture. The call to be separate from the world must be heeded and it must be followed if you are a person in the church of God as his chosen people. And we are to have a a positive spiritual influence in the world. And the only way you can do that is to be separate. And not only are we separate, we're better. It's not like we're better in a prideful way. We're better off because of God's grace. We are better off to shine as a light in this world that we live in, in the midst of the darkness. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, the call is to be separate. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 6, and we're going to talk about this this incredible passage. And I'm going to show you four different things in this passage here, which talks clearly about how we have to be different than the world. We got to be completely different, all right? And so I want you to just look at these with me, if you will. Number one, to be bound together with unbelievers. We're going to look at four ways and reasons we should be separate. Number one, to be bound together with unbelievers is unreasonable. It's just unreasonable. In fact, look at A with me, if you will. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So look again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be equally yoked with unbelievers. And so we're going to look here at verse 14, and I just want you to know that the word partnership here, or, uh, the, the idea of, of, of uh, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, the word partnership here is the word sharing. So we could say, what do righteousness and lawlessness share in common? And if it relates to, to keeping the law, they, they don't share anything in common. There's nothing in common that there's a, a person who's, who's, who's righteous and a person who's lawless. There's nothing they share there, as it says here, they're unequally yoked. You know what it means to be unequally yoked? It means that you don't walk to the beat of the same drum. Believers and unbelievers are so diametrically opposed to each other. They're so different. They don't have anything that fits together. And it couldn't be more clear that the believer has to abandon everything that the world offers. A call to abandon our old self and to adhere to the kingdom of God. And that's all because of the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the idea of being unequally yoked, okay? That, t- that phrase, by by the way, being unequally yoked comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 22, 10 and 11 says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So Paul's building on that concept and he's like, hey, we got to be totally separate. I mean, according to the dietary laws given in uh, earlier in Deuteronomy, the ox was considered a clean animal, and a donkey was considered an unclean animal. And not only that, but these two animals, an ox and a donkey, he's talking about that as an example of being unequally yoked, an ox and a donkey have different temperaments. 
They have different physical structure and makeup. They have different characteristics. It would make it literally impossible for them to somehow be yoked together in order to plow a straight furrow. You just couldn't do it. And so in Paul's analogy here in 2 Corinthians, believers and unbelievers are two different breeds that cannot work together in the same spiritual realm. And so he's calling for a separation in matters of work, uh, work for God since the cooperation for spiritual progress is literally impossible. Now, this command doesn't mean that you can't befriend your neighbor who's an unbeliever or anyone in our community outside of our church. We are, in fact, called to be salt and light. We're called to go into the highways and the byways and with compassion and with a heart to truly help build relationships with lost people for the purpose of evangelism. But it's, there's a difference between winning a world to Christ and somehow working together with the world in order to make this world a better place. And so make no mistake about it, Paul is really demanding a total break when it comes to the idea of partnering in any spiritual enterprise. In spiritual matters, the church is to be absolutely distinct from the culture. And so Paul is calling for the church to be separate from the world, whatever the cost. This issue here is not about harnessing believers with unbelievers in any spiritual endeavor. Don't compromise spiritually. Don't put your church in a place to where it starts to look like the culture. Don't allow the philosophy of the world to infiltrate when it comes to scripture, to doctrine, to worship, or to practice. And so again, what we're doing is I'm going to give you four reasons why we're not to be bound. I've already introduced number one to you. Don't be bound with unbelievers because it's unreasonable. And now I'm going to give you five examples of why Paul is saying this is unreasonable. Don't be unequally yoked. Let me give you five reasons why. The first was, again, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And we've already said nothing. There is nothing similar about being righteous and about being lawless. Obviously, righteousness and lawlessness are opposites. They oppose each other. Righteousness is obedience to the law of God, and lawlessness is rebellion against the law of God. So you have one person who's made righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ, who's now bent in their nature towards righteousness, and they long for God's law, and they want to read God's law and study God's law, and they're not legalists. They just love the Word of God. And then you have unrighteous people, and they hate the Bible, and they hate preachers, and they hate anybody who tells them what they can do or shouldn't do because they want to go their own way, and that's being unrighteous. That's being lawless. They don't want the law of God over them at all. Righteousness bows the knee before the throne of God. Lawlessness spits in God's face. A righteous person is made righteous by God's grace alone. And so you love and want to follow God's righteous law. While a lawless person hates God's law, they want to fight against it with all of their heart. I would even ask you the question, which one do you think brings you more joy? Sometimes, somehow, we think that people in the world are having more fun. They're having a party. They get to do whatever they want, and we're supposed to walk the righteous way and walk according to the Scripture, and that means you can't have any fun. Well, that's not true. Hey, I believe that righteousness actually produces joy. Righteousness and walking in obedience is far greater way to live life than as a rebel against God's law where consequences will be coming down on your head. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter 
of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You ever heard that phrase, the oil, being, having the oil of gladness? That's what he's talking about. He's like, look, when you go the righteous path, the way of God, the way of his word, he anoints you. He gives you. He freely offers you the oil of gladness. There, there is nobody in the world that is having a better time than a true Christian. You are given the joy of our Lord, and righteousness leads to joy. Lawlessness leads to pain and heartache. Righteousness leads to a life of integrity. Lawlessness leads to a life of shame. In Christ, you have the oil of gladness. And did you know that you used to be uh, part of the world, but you've been brought out? And I'm so thankful that we've all been brought out of that relationship that we used to have because now we can be truly happy because our happiness, again, is not built on circumstances or feelings or sinful activity. It's built on Christ. And that you, you, you used to be separate from Christ, meaning you used to be part of the world. You, you were a stranger before you were saved to the hope that God gives. In fact, Ephesians 2.12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger, uh, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Titus 2.14 that uh, Dave read to us this morning, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God has redeemed us to do righteous deeds, not lawless deeds. And so what does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? Answer, absolutely nothing. The righteous and the rebellious cannot partner in any common spiritual enterprise because of this absolute contrast that exists between them. Let me give you a second rhetorical question that Paul asked to ask this question that why should they be not unequally yoked? We're saying it's unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. One is you can't mix them together because righteousness and lawlessness don't mix. The second one, your next blank says, well, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And we see that at the very end of verse 14. So it should be self-evident that light and darkness are mutually exclusive. And that just kind of reminds me of the science experiment, right? In the sixth grade where the teacher turns out all the lights and it's totally dark and then they light like one candle and it gives light for the whole room and all the sixth graders are like, oh, oh. you know, and it's just like, but like if it's dark, it's dark. If it's light, it's light. If you just have one light on, there's light that can be seen by everybody in that particular realm of darkness. And what we're saying is they're mutually exclusive. Light and darkness are not friends. They are enemies. They don't exist together in the same room. For when there is light, there is no more darkness. And when it is daytime, there is no more night. Intellectually, light refers to truth, while darkness refers to error. Morally, light refers to holiness, while darkness refers to evil. Spiritually, light refers to sight, seeing and knowing God, while darkness leads to blindness. Biblically speaking, those who are righteous in Christ walk in the light. 
Jesus said it this way in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We also read in 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So those who are unrighteous are part of Satan's kingdom of darkness, Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So the pathway of light ultimately leads to the eternal illumination of heaven, whereas the path of the wicked leads to the darkness of hell. To expect the children of light to walk together with the children of darkness is as foolish as to expect to be both light and dark at the same time. You can't be light in the world and darkness in the world at the same time. It just can't happen. So what do light and darkness share? Absolutely nothing. A third rhetorical question, your next blank. Well, what harmony has Christ with Belial? If you look at verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? So Paul's doing his teaching, asking his questions to make his point. The first two questions that we've already covered focus on the radical different nature of a believer versus the nature of an unbeliever. A believer is righteous in Christ and walks in the light. An unbeliever is lawless and walks in the darkness. This third question deals with the leaders of these two kingdoms who are mutually also exclusive of each other. And there is definitely an eternal and fundamental antagonism between the divine Christ, who's the ruler of the kingdom of righteousness and light, and Belial, which by the way is an ancient name for Satan, who is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness and lawlessness. So he's like, hey, Christians and unbelievers, believers and unbelievers have nothing in common because the leader of those two groups of people have nothing in common, Jesus and Satan. Need I say more, right? It's so obvious the difference that exists. But I want you to turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 5 to illustrate the incompatibility between God and Satan in this interesting but familiar passage from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. You'll recognize this when, we, when you see it, but the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. It's taken up by the Philistines, and let's read what happens. 1 Samuel 5, 1, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. So the Philistines are proud of their treasure. They knew the Ark of the Covenant meant a lot to the Israelites. Instead of destroying it, they figured we'll add this to our temple of gods. Our main God is Dagon, but we're going to add Israel's God to our God. We're going to have a plurality here. You know what happens, verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So the next morning, they like show up and their God was bowing down to the God of Israel. So they put their God back in its same place, verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon. And both his hands were lying cut off 
the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon, Dagon was left him. That means the kid always, always enjoyed reading it. I'm like, yeah, get him. You know, and it's just like God made that other false god bow down before the presence of God, symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. And the second day, cut off his arms and legs. He's got no power and no mobility. He can't do anything. You can't have God and an idol together in the same sentence. Turn with me to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Again, we see there's no commonality between God and Satan. In the New Testament, uh, this is illustrated by Christ and Satan. As you know, Christ was taken into the wilderness. He's going through temptations. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Another reminder, you can't have somehow Satan's got his kingdom. Christ has his kingdom and the two kingdoms don't mix. And you have Christ basically telling Satan, look, I'm not bowing down to your kingdom. Be gone. They don't mix together at all. And the same is true of us. In fact, if you look over a couple more chapters in Matthew to Matthew 6, we see not only is there a huge difference between Satan and Jesus, which goes without saying, but we're told here as well, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we understand God stands alone. He stands alone in the Old Testament. Christ stands alone in the New Testament. Every born-again Christian who's in Christ is to stand alone before God, not you and your money, you and whatever you're struggling with, your idol, right? And so what he's saying here, in back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? To have an accord means to be in agreement with. It means to have harmony with. Uh, The word here, accord, is where we actually get our English word, symphony. In in a symphony, you must have all the musical instruments agreeing with each other, working together to create a beautiful sound. Otherwise, it's like a clanging gong or a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal, right? It's like making a racket, and you can't hardly stand to hear it. And so there, there is no harmony whatsoever. There's no symphony between Jesus and Belial, absolutely none. And to think that the church would somehow partner with the world is about as unthinkable as Christ partnering with Satan. Such a ridiculous fusion of the church and the world in a spiritual endeavor is a satanic strategy. So when you see Christian churches employing worldly things, I'm not talking about preferences, I'm talking about worldly philosophy. It is a disaster, and it is a cantankerous problem that leads to an explosion of sound and noise because of the obvious difference. I'm saying there's no accord, there's no harmony, and it's going to be in a mess, kind of like a a middle school orchestra. Those are bad. Those are awful. All right, so, all right, let's move on to a fourth question. A fourth question, what commonality has a believer with an unbeliever? 
We've been talking all around it, but he says it straight up here. Not only is there no commonality between Christ, Christ and Belial, but what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So what do you have in common with an unbeliever? Do you have the same faith? No. Do you have the same goals in life? No. Do you have the same interests when it comes to spiritual matters? No. Do you share the same devotion? No. Do you have the same moral standards? No. Do you have the same future of where you'll go when you die? No. Do you have the same worldview? No. Do you share anything in common? And I told you it's only temporal and external things that you might share in common, but the things that really matter, the things that define you, the things that make you who you are, your identity and your true heart of hearts has nothing to do with the world. But shouldn't the church mix with the culture as much as possible in order to make some people from the world feel comfortable? And again, that's where I'm saying if it's on a preference issue, that's neither here nor there. But if it's on a spiritual philosophy, we're not trying to mix or attract anyone from the world. And I, I believe one answer could be found in, a, uh, in a, a, you know, setting a precedent, which would be in Deuteronomy. Turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, we're talking about believers, unbelievers, nothing in common. And we see this illustrated so beautifully here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, where Moses writes, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. He's saying, hey, look, when you guys come into the promised land and you come into Canaan, that's your land. And when you come in, not only am I going to give it to you in cities you didn't build and houses you didn't build, and it's going to flow with milk and honey, I want you to completely eradicate all of these other people who live there. That's what he's telling them. Verse 2, towards the end, you shall make no covenant with them. And you Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters into their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. He's warning them ever so earnestly, don't mix with that culture. Don't mix with their beliefs. Don't mix with their gods. So you can't even intermarry with these pagan people because they're going to turn your heart away from God. Verse 5, but this you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy. To the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So when we read a passage like that, we realize that illustrates for us what we're supposed to be like. We're not to be intermarrying together with unbelievers. We're not to try to find this commonality that I have as a Christian on the path of righteousness with an unbeliever. Our job and our goal is to witness and evangelize and to bring them in only to help them see the light. I mean, really, our goal as a church is to smash the things in the culture that point toward anything but the glory of God. 
You can't mix with the LGBTQ plus agenda. You can't mix with the critical race theory. You cannot mix with BLM. You cannot mix with abortion rights. You cannot mix with pluralism. You cannot mix with any philosophy of this world. It has no place in the church. So we have a responsibility to understand we're not to be yoked together with the world in any way. And then one final rhetorical question, E, in your outline. Well, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We see that question there, again, listed in the first part of verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So I hope it's clear by now that the answer to all five of these rhetorical questions is an emphatic nothing, absolutely nothing. There's nothing in common with the temple of God and the temple of idols. In fact, we already saw that in one place, but turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 21 just to again show the stark difference between the temple of God and the temple of idols. Second Kings chapter 21, Manasseh was 12 years old. I'm in 21, 2 Kings verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the peoples of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. But he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Skip down to verse 9. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all, the Amor- than, than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Do you want to know why the children of Israel went into exile? Do you want to know why the Assyrians completely destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, took Judah into exile to Babylon? This is God judging his people because they did not obey what he called them to do by being separate. They intermingled, they intermarried, they interfaithed together with non-believers. And this is why God judged Israel in the Old Testament. And this is why God will judge the church today that interacts in a similar way. If the church joins hands with the world on any spiritual issue, then there will be a great explosion. And I'm telling you with this LGBTQ agenda, it's already here. And churches are falling like flies and they're embracing it and endorsing it like crazy. This church will not. We will not give in to that issue or any issue because we stand on the word of God and believers are going to be responsible and delight in standing for Christ. And we have a responsibility to do, to do that that's so apparent throughout all of that we're reading. But even check out 1 Corinthians. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6 because basically the Bible says that believers both individually 
and collectively are the temple of God. So that temple, just like the temple of God and the temple of idols don't mix, well, now you're the temple. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That particular word there is in the singular. So you as an individual are a temple and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that is within you. Verse 20, you bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So singularly, you represent a temple of God. But we also do that collectively. If you'll back up to 1 Corinthians 3, you'll see the same concept, but it's in the plural. So we know both as individuals, we have to be the temple of God. And as a church together, collectively, we're the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and following, do you not know that you, that's plural, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So we're to individually hold to this conviction And we are to collectively hold to this conviction. And just that it is sacrilegious for Manasseh or any other wicked king to bring idols into the house of the Lord, so is it sacrilegious for you to bring any idols of sin into your heart? Are we to bring any idol of sin of the philosophy of this world into this church? And so we have to ask the question, are are we heeding, back to our main text, are we heeding 2 Corinthians chapter 6? Are we being sacrilegious? Or are we being sanctified as God's spirit dwells in us? The first reason why we should not be bound together with unbelievers is that it is unreasonable, meaning it does not make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Light and darkness, righteousness and wickedness, Jesus and Satan, the temple of God with the temple of idols, believers, it makes no sense. A second reason why we should not be bound with unbelievers. Number two, to be bound with unbelievers is ungodly. It is ungodly. Verse 17, when he says here, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them. Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. So to be bound together with unbelievers is not only foolish and irreverent, but it disobeys God's explicit command that is given here in this verse where we are to come out and be separate. He gives two phrases just to make sure you come all the way out and you be completely separate. And the thought in this verse brings our attention back to Isaiah 52, where God commanded his people when they were in exile because of their disobedience and they were in Babylon. And now they're returning to Jerusalem. Isaiah 52, 11 says, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So he's saying, hey, look, you guys have been in Babylon for 70 years, and some of you have started to implement into that culture, and you're not supposed to. That's why Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so careful to say, we're not going to get involved in what the Babylonians do. So when they're coming back 70 years later, he's like, hey, guys, this is a good time for you to make sure you're really coming out now from Babylon, and you're going to be separate. You're going to leave all that pagan stuff behind. And you got to be pure and devoted to the Lord. And dear Christian, like Israel at the time of their salvation, we too must make a clean break with all false religion and to avoid its contaminating influence. 
We have to be completely separate. This is how Paul says that you can just listen. Ephesians 5, 5 and following says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So God's calling us to obey the command of the Lord and to not touch what is unclean, to come to Christ and to him alone, and he will fill you, again, as we've been talking about, he'll fill you with the joy, the oil of gladness. That's a reference to your salvation. It's a reference to the joy God brings. And as you walk in that joy, it's such a better life than somehow being mixed with the world. And so we don't want to be mixed with the world, not only because it's completely unreasonable, makes no sense in the mind that's been renewed, but it's also ungodly, verse 17, to stay somehow mixed with the world. But it's also, verse 18, number three, a third reason not to be bound with believers is it's unprofitable. It's unprofitable to be bound together with unbelievers. Verse 18, and I will be a father to you and you will be my uh, sons and my daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Well, what, what benefit can you find from being bound with the world? If you are of the world and not of God, then your father is the devil and you do not belong to God. And if your father is the devil, then you have no inheritance. You have no future. You have no true happiness. He's saying in verse 18, you come back to me. I'm going to be your father. I gave life to you. I'm your heavenly father, which the opposite must be true. If you don't come back to me, you're not of me, the father of light. You're of the father of darkness. You're of your father, the devil, with no inheritance, no future, no true happiness. It is completely unprofitable for you to be bound to the world. It ultimately does you no good at all. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6 states this so clearly where it shows us how unprofitable sin really is. What benefit does it bring you? According to Romans 6, verse 20 through 23, it brings us no benefit. Zero. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So in your depravity, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you maybe didn't really experience the, the, the full understanding of, of the responsibility of righteousness and the gift of righteousness. You were free from those things. But here's the question, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So he was like, hey, what did that really bring you? It was like eating rotten fruit. It was like, eating food that's gone sour and it makes you sick. He's saying, what, what in the world, how in the world has any of that benefited you at all? The answer is it hasn't. But now, verse 22, that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it's an eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, now you have the benefit of not being treated like an enemy, but as a son, as a daughter, as a co-heir with Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and following. We're talking about, again, what did you get for being of the world? You just get the devil. That's all you get. You get the devil, his ploy, his consequences, his eternal state. But when you come with God, obviously, God is our father and he gives us an inheritance. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, for you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. So please understand when he says you are a son, it's sons and daughters, you're a child, you belong to him, but there's a special relationship in that culture that a son had to receive the inheritance and that is given to every Christian. It's given to every Christian. To be bound with Christ is heaven and all of its joys and to be bound with unbelievers is to be bound with Satan and all of its woes. To be bound together with unbelievers is unreasonable, it's ungodly, it's unprofitable. And our last point is this, the fourth reason that we should not be bound with unbelievers, to be bound with unbelievers is being ungrateful. Just plain out being ungrateful after everything that God has done for his people, that somehow these Corinthians who were in the church would somehow long for the past when they now have been set free with a new future, to be bound together with unbelievers, it's completely ungrateful. Verse seven, since we have these promises Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What promises is he talking about in verse 1? Everything we've been talking about. He's talking about verses 16 through 18 of the previous chapter when God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. He's talking about his people. I will be their God, they will be my people, therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. These are the promises that 7-1 is talking about. These promises ought to provide a powerful motivation for believers to separate with unbelievers. So here, Paul moves beyond God's commands and he appeals to God's promises, which should generate in us love and gratitude and thankfulness for his overwhelming generosity. And God says, I want to adopt you into my family. And Paul defines the appropriate act of gratitude both negatively and positively. Negatively, believers must cleanse themselves from all defilement. This must be a cleansing from both fleshly uh, and evil deeds, a cleansing of flesh and spirit, a cleansing of body and soul, a cleansing of, of mind and heart. And positively, cleansing ourselves from false religion involves perfecting holiness in the fear of God to to perfect means to finish. 
that word to teleos, to, to, to finish, to complete, to fulfill, to be mature in Christ. And this is only ultimately done when you know Christ. 1 Peter 2, 11, therefore, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. 1 John 3, 3, and everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. The idea is we, have, we do have a responsibility. I mean, it's Christ's imputed righteousness. He forgives us, but at the same time, we're to walk like that, which means daily confession, which means daily awareness, which means every moment of every day, we're examining that movie, that song, that dress, that activity, that money spent, that entertainment uh, that I value. I'm evaluating everything and say, hey, look, I, I got to live in the world, but I'm not going to be of the world. And I'm not going to let that stuff taint my soul. And God's called me to come out and be separate. And I'm just saying there's some of us here this morning, you're mixing a little too much. The lines are a little bit too blurry. You really can't tell the difference when you just examine your life other than Sunday morning, small group, maybe youth group on Wednesday night. You can't, people can't really see the difference. Maybe you don't cuss, all right? I'll give that to you. That's great. I'm glad you don't cuss, all right? But when you really start to look at how you spend your time and your resources, can people see a vast difference in you and the world? That's our challenge today. And hopefully as we're seeing these two sides, the polarization, if you will, of following light or darkness, we're like, man, I, I want to run in the light. And there's times I, I'm tempted to flirt with darkness. And sometimes I, I think it might bring me some, some kind of something I'm missing out. I, I got FOMO, fear of missing out, right? I'm scared that if I, if I don't know who won the Emmys and who won the Grammys and, and all, I, then I'll, I'll just miss out. It's okay. It's all right. You don't have to be up on pop culture. Praise God. You don't have to know what your favorite celebrity is doing or not doing. You don't have to click on that article and be like, oh, they're getting a divorce. Let me read about that. You don't have to. You can be so wrapped up sometimes in just the world that we live in that we forget, you know, I, I need to make a clean break. And if that's you this morning, maybe God's just speaking to you through his words. It's time for you to make a break. This is like, you know, this is like summer camp. The last night, and we're about to go back to home, and we're like, hey, let's put another stick in the fire. You know, let's, let's get rid of that music. Let's get rid of that whatever. Like, why wouldn't we want to live like that every day? Like, God, just, I, I've, just been, I've just been too much in the world. Would you help me? Would you forgive me? We need to do it together. Remember, it's both individually and it's collectively. Let, let us do the deeds of righteousness together. Let us walk in his light together. Let us have harmony with Christ in that great orchestra. Let us have and share in common with one another as we practice the one another's of the New Testament. Let us agree with the temple of God, both individually and collectively. Let us obey with a heart of gratitude and find much benefit and much profit being bound to Christ and his family. If you're here this morning and what I'm saying is not appealing to your heart, then, then you're lost. And this morning, we want to invite you into this relationship with Christ. This very day could be the day for you to say, it's time to make a break with the world. And I want to come and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, which basically means you come to the end of yourself and you realize you can't do it any longer on your own. You don't have enough willpower to make it in this world. And you need the grace of God. And I would call you on this day to just come out of your darkness and just come to the light. Come to Christ. He loves you. He died for you. 
He was raised from the dead that you could have new life in him. And so after we sing this last song, we'll have a few people up here. They would love to talk to you. They'd love to pray with you. If you're a Christian this morning and you're just like, you know what? I I, I need to talk to somebody. We're available. Don't leave this morning without thinking through. Dads, as you get home with your family, just like, all right, family, what'd you think? What breaks do we need to make as a world, as a family with the world? How can we be different? Because God has invited us in. He's cleansing us. He's washing us. He's given us the oil of gladness. How could we not want to resonate and to rejoice in what God has done for us through Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the call to be separate. It's a good reminder for us this morning as sometimes we get sucked into and kind of start to fade a little bit towards the things of the world. And we're praying this morning that you would show us that stark difference between heaven and hell, between light and darkness, between Christ and Belial, between a believer and an unbeliever. God, we we don't want to be yoked together with unbelievers in any spiritual enterprise. We want to be so different than the world that it would cause people to say, hey, why do you do what you're doing and why are you so different? And that we would be able to say, because because I've been saved. I'm not better. I'm better off because of the grace of God. And I I used to walk down that path and it it just led to filth and it led to heartache and it led to pain and consequence. We know in our hearts that you've set eternity in us that we'll live forever either in heaven or hell. And so this morning, God, we're praying that you would draw people out of and away from the kingdom of darkness and you would show how gross and sick and and, and evil and vile that the kingdom of the world really is and that we would see in contrast the beauty and the light of your grace and the aroma of Christ and we would be attracted to our risen Savior in all of the beauty and majesty that we see in scripture of your character and your name and your renown and we can't wait to be with you in heaven forever and ever. We long for the second coming of Christ. And in the meantime, as a church, God, help us to put a stake in the ground. Help us to be reminded this morning, we're not given in and we're not given up. And that's going to cost us. It's going to be difficult. But we're so thankful. We're so grateful that we have you as our father and that you've adopted us into your family. And so I pray that you would work your word into our hearts in a special way today to help us see and practice these things all for your glory and in your power. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.